if God is real, if God is real, then why are you still here? If God is real, then why are you still here? Those are the words, those are the words spoken by a North Korean prison guard to Kenneth Bay. Kenneth Bay was a South Korean-born American citizen who just a few years ago, 2013, was convicted, here's a photo of him, was convicted on charges of planning to overthrow the North Korean government. His crime? He was a pastor. He was a missionary. In fact, he went to the same seminary, got the same degree that both Austin and I have from Covenant in St. Louis. But to the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, being a missionary is the same thing as being a terrorist. The two terms are interchangeable. North Korea is officially an atheist state. At the time of his capture, Bay was visiting North Korea for the 18th time. He had set up a tour company as a cover for his missionary work. And so what he would do is he would bring in Christians into North Korea, would show them around, and while they were there, would encourage them to pray for a revival of sorts in the country of North Korea. They never, they never talked about Jesus openly. They never passed out Bibles. They never did any worship services, anything like that. All they did was pray. But this time, the 18th time, they had gone into North Korea. He made a tragic mistake. You see, he brought with him into the country in his suitcase an external hard drive. And on that external hard drive were files and photos documenting all of his missionary work in North Korea. As he went through customs in the airport, authorities uh, detained him. And once they went through the files on the hard drive, they arrested him, later sending him to trial. And that trial, in fact, found him guilty of hostile acts against the government. In their eyes, he was a dangerous criminal intent on destroying North Korea. That's, that's literally what they said in his sentencing. He was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor at a North Korean prison camp. He would eventually endure psychological torture, forced labor, failing health. Altogether, he lost over 60 pounds in just three months in this prison camp. Kenneth Bay ultimately became the longest held American prisoner in North Korea since the Korean War. Eventually, Bay, reflecting back, would write these words. After about a year in prison, I doubted that I would ever get home. My mother sent me a letter telling me to have faith like Daniel's three friends. Maybe you remember the story of Daniel and his friends in the Old Testament. So I began to ponder whether God wanted me to stay in North Korea. I learned to say, Lord, you know my heart, not my will, but yours be done. I give up my right to go home, and I leave my family to you. He said this, catch this. He said, in those moments, my prayer changed. My prayer changed from send me home, Lord, to use me. Use me, Lord. You see, astonishingly, Kenneth Bay never lost his faith, and that's because Kenneth Bay believed that God had a plan and a purpose for his life. He had a way of seeing God. He had a way of seeing God's plan in a way that we don't always see. He said, I, I often looked in the mirror in my prison cell, and I said to myself, 
I'm a missionary. I was sent here by God. Do not forget. Do not be discouraged. You are here for a reason. That's what he told himself. You are here for a reason. If God is real, then why are you still here? That's what that guard said to him. Faye's response? Maybe his plan. Maybe God's plan involves you. How will you know anything about God unless I tell you? You see, that that prison guard couldn't have understood Bay's answer. He couldn't see that God had a plan and a purpose for Bay's life, but Bay could. Even in a North Korean prison camp, Kenneth Bay believed that God hadn't forgotten about him. God had a plan. God had a purpose for his life. Why are you still here? Kenneth Bay believed that he was there because people need Jesus. And because of that, instead of praying in a prison camp, God send me home. He said, God, use me. See, not everybody knows how to answer that question, why are you still here? Not everybody believes that God has a plan. Not everybody believes that God has a purpose for our lives. Not everybody believes that life has meaning. The late 1980s, the editors of Life magazine tackled this idea head on. They, they asked 300 wise men and women from celebrated authors, actors, artists to spiritual leaders, farmers, barbers, welfare, people on welfare. They asked them to answer these questions. What is the meaning of life? Where is it derived? Why are we here? And as I was reading this, this article, as I was paying attention to what people said, I, I noticed that there are basically two common answers, two primary narratives that people seem to be living out of, two different stories that were being told, two different answers to the question, why are you still here? And of course, those two different answers were two different versions of either God exists or he doesn't. For example, uh, humorous Garrison Keller, he, he writes this. He says, to know and serve God, of course, that's why we're here. Legendary NFL head coach Mike Ditka, he says this. He says, I believe we're here for a reason, created by somebody to live for somebody, to return to somebody. I believe that I'm created by God to do the job that he's given me while I'm here to serve him and then eventually return to him. Not everybody believes that, though. Not everybody believes that God exists, that God has a plan, that God has a purpose for our lives. Comedian Jackie Mason writes this. He says, life has no meaning beyond this reality, but people keep searching for it. Another guy, a taxi driver, said this. He said, we're just here to die, just to live and die. I drive a cab, I do some fishing, I take my girl out, do a little reading, then get ready to drop dead. You're rich, you're poor. You're here, you're gone, you're like the wind. You're gone, someone else comes. It's not very happy. Maybe most pointedly, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould says this. He says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and crook. 
He says, we, we, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And this explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating. It's ultimately exhilarating. He says, we cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We have to construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom, from our own ethical sense. He says, there is no other way. Two narratives. God exists, God doesn't. Two common responses. And those are the same responses that I think are alive and well in our culture today. You see, either there is a God, a God that gives meaning and significance and purpose to our lives, or there isn't, right? And instead of God giving us purpose, we're left to create our own purpose. We're left to create our own meaning, to find our own happiness. But at the end of the day, it's all just a waste of time, because if there isn't a God, and we're really all just here by accident, just here to live and die, and we're gone, and someone else comes, you don't really matter, Your life doesn't matter. It's meaningless. You can try to fabricate some sort of meaning. You can try to muster up some sort of purpose. But really, if that's your worldview, you're just an accident. So why bother pretending? What story are you living in? Whose story are you living in? God's? Or your own? Why are you still here? You see, how we answer those questions, it has a significant, a significant impact on our life. And if anyone knows this, it's the Apostle Paul. Tonight we're continuing our series through the, the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And before we jump into our passage, I want to I do something to help us to kind of understand the context. I want you to do something with me. Imagine for a second. Sit there to yourself, imagine, think of a really good friend, someone you care a lot about, someone you love, someone, someone that means a lot to you. Think about that person. Have them in your mind. Okay, now imagine that that friend is traveling overseas. I don't know, they're visiting someone, they're on vacation, they're studying abroad. That's where they are. And though they haven't broken the law, though they've done nothing morally lo- wrong, for some reason they're arrested and they're thrown in jail. Your friend's arrested, overseas, thrown in jail. And to make matters worse, you find out that the punishment for the crime that they've been arrested for is death. You have no way to get to your friend. You can't get there. The only thing you can do is send them a letter. What would you say? Picture your friend. Picture the scenario. How are you feeling See, if you're doing that, you're probably starting to understand how the Philippians felt about Paul, who was a good friend, who was in prison in Rome, facing the death penalty. See, the the Philippians couldn't physically go to Paul, and so what they do is they send a letter with a guy named Epaphroditus. And Paul gets that letter and reads that letter, and, and what Paul does is he responds to that letter with a letter of his own. And that letter that Paul sends back is the letter of Philippians, the book of Philippians that we have in the New Testament. And so tonight, we're going to look at three concerns that the Philippians have for Paul. We're going to look at how Paul responds to those concerns, and we're going to ask the question, what on earth does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? 
Philippians' first concern is this. They're concerned that Paul is in prison in Rome. You see, in many cases, Roman prisons were, were awful. Prisoners were often stripped and beaten. Wounds went untreated. Blood-stained clothes went unchained, unchanged. Prisoners sat for long periods of time with painful leg, wrist shackles attached to their bodies. Most of the cells in these prisons were dark, especially the, the cells that were on the inner part of the prison. They were also unbearably cold at times. They lacked water. They were cramped. They smelled terrible because they didn't have enough toilets. All of these things and more made every waking and sleeping hour miserable. And so because of this, historians say many people, frankly, just asked for a quick death. It was that bad. And if they didn't get that, oftentimes people would commit suicide. Needless to say, it shouldn't be surprising that the Philippians are concerned that their friend is in this kind of place, in this kind of prison. And so how would Paul respond to them? How would he respond to their concerns? Look at Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Paul says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul had two options, two different ways that he could have responded. He could have easily, of course, written the Philippians and told them how afraid he was. We would understand that if he did. He could have told them how miserable he was, how discouraged he must have been because God had specifically called him to preach the gospel to the nations and yet, rather than being out there, he was locked up in a prison, guarded by the imperial guard, Caesar's elite troops. I mean, imagine for a second how difficult that must have been. Imagine how hard it must have been. Everyone knew why Paul was there. Everyone knew Paul was a Christian. Imagine how many times guards looked at Paul and mocked him and said, God, or Paul, if God is real, then why are you still here? And Paul's response? Maybe he said, maybe because his plan includes you. How will you know anything about God unless I'm here? Look again at, at those verses. I want us to pay attention to a couple things. 12 and 13 again. Paul says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Paul says, my imprisonment is for Christ. Why are you still here? Well, Paul says, despite the difficulty of his circumstances, I'm here because people need Jesus. That's my reason for living. I have a purpose in life. That purpose is to advance the gospel. Use me, God, is Paul's prayer. You see, some people see prison as the end of the story, but Paul sees it as an opportunity, an opportunity to tell the Romans that there is a Lord, an opportunity to tell the Romans that there is a God, and his name isn't Caesar. My imprisonment, Paul says, is for Christ. See, Paul saw Jesus, and he saw his plan in a way that we don't always see. Uh, one of the things that I love to do most in my free time is I, I, I love to fly fish. I've, I've been doing it since I was like 12 with my dad. Um, 
one of the reasons I love fly fishing so much is because there's a strategy to it. You've got you to wear the right color clothes, the right hat. You've got to find the right size rod and reel. You've got to pay attention to the bugs on the water so you know what kind of tie to fly in the line. You've got to know what kind of knot to use. You've got to decide what kind of way to cast. You know, are you going to roll cast? Are you going to overhead cast? How are you going to float that little itty bitty fly in front of that fish? I love it. It's a fun challenge. But one of the most important things about fly fishing is something that you might not expect, something I had to learn. One of the most important things about fly fishing is the kind of sunglasses that you're wearing. You see, most avid fishermen know that when you fish, you need polarized lenses. You guys probably know what polarized lenses are, right? They have a special coating on them that helps reduce the glare. And when you're fishing, that's really important because it helps you to see the fish under the water. And so in other words, by neutralizing the reflection off the water, polarized lenses help you see something that you wouldn't otherwise see. You see the fish. That's exactly what's happening with Paul. He saw Jesus. He saw God's plan in a way that we don't always see. You see, Paul had the right pair of glasses on. And those glasses helped him to see, helped him to understand that God has a purpose. God has a plan for his life despite the circumstances that he's in. Despite sitting in a prison in Rome. But what does that have to do with us? Well, the same thing is true for our lives. The the kind of glasses that we wear, it really matters. You see, one pair of glasses helps us to see that God exists. They help us to see God's story, an incredible story, a a story much bigger than ourselves. They help us to see the purpose, the significance, the meaning that God gives to our lives. They help us to see the answer to the question, why are you still here? You see, in the midst of difficult circumstances, the right pair of glasses help us to see God in the way that God wants us to see him. They help us to see Yes, this is hard. Yes, maybe it hurts. But God is with us. We suffer with Jesus. God has a plan, and nothing can stop that. Not not even these hard circumstances. The other pair of glasses, though, it, it completely shades that reality. They prevent us from seeing what's really there. They they hide the fact that God exists, that God has a plan. And if God doesn't exist, then he certainly has, doesn't have a plan. No one has a plan for you. And so you're left to create your own plan. You're left to create your own meaning. You're left to create your own purpose. And if we have to create our own meaning and purpose in order to find our happiness, then hear this, it's going to be devastating. It's going to be devastating to you when your circumstances get really hard. You won't be able to see past them. And so when that breakup happens, It sends you into a complete tailspin. When your health deteriorates, it's crushing. When you don't get the grade that you want, it overcomes you with anxiety. When you find out your parents are getting a divorce, you turn to alcohol, drugs to numb the pain. You see, when we put the wrong glasses on, we miss what God might actually be doing in our lives. At best, we miss him. At worst, it wrecks us. It devastates us. 
You see, Paul knows that changing circumstances, they don't matter because God and his plan never change. Our purpose, our meaning won't be wrecked if we see God because God is completely in control. God started something. He's going to finish it. He's going to bring it to completion. His purpose will be fulfilled. That's what Austin helped us to understand last week. Now, I need to say this. I, I, I want to make sure that you guys aren't hearing something that I'm not saying. I know a lot of you in this room, and I know that a lot of you in this room are going through really difficult circumstances. And even if you're not, someday you will. I mean, that's just the reality this side of heaven. And so please don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that you and I have to pretend like everything's always all right. We don't have to act like and hide the fact that our circumstances sometimes are really hard, overwhelmingly hard. I don't know what to do anymore hard. See, it would be totally wrong to pretend like that wasn't true. God doesn't want us to put up a facade. He doesn't want us to act like we're fine when we're not. In in fact, he invites us to be brutally honest with him about the things that we're going through, about the difficult things that are happening in our life. The book of Psalms, it's the, the, the worship manual, so to speak, of the people of God in the Old Testament. And, and in the book of Psalms is an entire category of songs called laments. And laments are, are, are places where songs where people bring their personal pain to God. They bring their experiences of injustice and oppression. They bring their physical and verbal attacks. They bring their health diagnosis that are life-threatening. They bring them all to God and they cry out to God. You see, God cares very much about our circumstances. Our staff team, we care very much about your circumstances. And we want to walk with you through them. Wearing the right kind of glasses doesn't mean pretending like difficult circumstances are easy. Notice that Paul doesn't say being a prisoner in Rome was no big deal. But what did he say? He said that he trusted that God had a plan. He said that he trusted that God had a purpose for him despite the place he was in. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has a purpose and a plan for your life? I mean, think of the difference that it would make in your life if you lived with that kind of faith that knows that God knows what he's doing and God isn't going to leave you. Why are we still here? The kind of glasses that we have on are really important in how we answer that question. It really does make a difference. So the first concern is that the Philippians have is that Paul is in prison. The second concern they have is that there are Christians in Rome trying to afflict Paul. Look at 15 through 17. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What's he talking about? That's, that's kind of some goofy language. Here's what's going on. Paul gets to Rome, and his fame quickly begins to spread. 
the imperial guard, Caesar's elite troops. Everyone knows why Paul is there, who he is, what he's about. Lots of Christians throughout Rome see Paul's example. They're encouraged. People are growing in their love for Jesus, their desire to live for his kingdom together. But apparently, Paul says, some Christians, rather than being encouraged by his example, they see his ministry success, he says they become envious. That word envy, it's, it's interesting. It's the same word used to describe the religious leaders who are so envious of Jesus that they handed him over to be crucified, to be killed. These Christians in Rome, not, not all, but some, Paul says, see his imprisonment as an opportunity and a, a spirit of rivalry wells up in their heart. They want the attention that Paul's been getting. And with Paul out of the way, with Paul locked up, now's a chance for them to make their name known. It's a chance for their fame to spread. And so they afflict Paul. Paul uses that language because he knows that they want Paul to experience the same kind of envy, the same kind of spirit of rivalry about their ministry now that he's in prison as they feel about his. And so these Christians, they look at Paul and they see his gifts. They see the way that God has designed him, the way that God is using him, the way that, that, that God is using them in the city. And rather than being encouraged by it, rather than celebrating it, rather than saying praise God, they become envious. Christians, envious of other Christians. They want what he has. They're unhappy that he has it. It kind of sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Does it sound familiar? You see, when we start to think about it like that, I think the attitudes of some of those Christians in Rome hits a little closer to home. At least it does for me. You see, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that I'm never envious of other people. I wish I could say that I never look at other people and what they have and want it. Quietly resent the fact that I don't have it. I wish I could say that I never get unhappy when I see the success of other people, but I can't. I can't. Maybe you're like me. We've got the wrong glasses on. We look at other people and we start to feel as if we're lacking something that we need. We see other people's friendships and we wish we had them. We see other people's popularity. We see their looks. We see their wit. We see their intelligence. We get frustrated that we don't have Whatever it is, maybe for you, you're envious of a relationship. Your friends always seem to be dating someone, and man, you just wish it were you. Maybe you're so envious of an internship or a job that someone else got. And so you think to yourself, man, that should have been me, not them. It's, I should have gotten that. Maybe you're on social media and you're you're flipping through your feed, and you're just envious of other people's lives. Man, they just seem like so much more fun. They seem better. They seem easier. They seem more comfortable than ours. So we walk around, and we say to ourselves, man, I deserve better. I deserve better than him. I deserve better than her. And that spirit of rivalry, it, it rises up within our own hearts if we're really brutally honest. It's exactly what these Christians in Rome, some of them, are doing to Paul. And notice how Paul responds. Look at verse 18. It's, I think it's fascinating. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, 
Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. See, Paul has the right glasses on. He's not endorsing their rivalry. He's not endorsing their envy, but he looks around, and he sees, and he hears that other people are preaching the gospel, and he says, because of that, I rejoice. I rejoice because my own purpose in life is to know Jesus, to make him known. I rejoice because my purpose in life is for the gospel to advance. And so regardless of what's happening to me, I can rejoice because I know the gospel is moving forward. What does that have to do with us, though? You see, Paul, he has a way of doing it. Paul reminds me of something that I need to hear all the time. It's not about me. My life, my friendships, my ministry, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. John 3, he must increase. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. See, so often I look for ways, if I'm being completely honest, I look for ways to advance myself. I look for ways to advance my success, my kingdom, my happiness. Paul reminds me that I have the wrong glasses on. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so catch this. It's important. If your purpose in life is God's purpose in life, you'll always have an answer to the question, why are you still here? You're here. You're here because God has something that he wants to do in your life. He has a plan. And so when we look at life through those lenses, we start to realize that that nothing happens apart from what God wants. And because of that, nothing can threaten to steal my joy. Think about the things that steal our joy. Not the success of others, not a relationship, not looks, not intelligence, nothing. Not circumstances. See, God has a plan for you. Lastly, the Philippians' third concern is that Paul is going to die. Paul knows, we said earlier, death is in the near future. It's a real possibility. Look at at verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul's sitting in prison, and he knows that he might die. And as he's sitting there, I mean, imagine that. Imagine sitting there knowing that you might soon die. Maybe you've had a circumstance in your life where that's been true. You felt that. And as Paul is sitting in this prison, as he's contemplating his own death, he starts to wrestle with attention. The next two verses, 21 and 22. Paul says, for me, for to me to live is Christ to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul says, on the one hand, to live is Christ. If I continue living, my ministry continues. God's going to continue using me. God, the, the gospel's going to continue to advance. Praise be to God. But he has this tension, because he says, on the other hand, to die is gain. To die is gain. Now, that's a, that's a challenging thought for us. We, we aren't used to thinking like that, right? I mean, if anything, our culture tells us that to die is loss. It's loss of life. 
It's loss of self. It's loss of stuff. And so death is something in our culture that we try to avoid. Life is something that we try to prolong as long as possible. And if, that, if God isn't real, if those are the glasses that we have on, that idea makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. This, is li- this life is all we've got. Life has no meaning beyond this reality. Stop searching for it, right? Stop searching for it. This life is all, it's it, all it is. There's no meaning. But Paul sees things completely differently. He's got a different pair of glasses on. Look what he says in, in, in 23. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two, between living and dying. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Far better than what? Remember, his friends are writing him a letter. They're concerned. Far better than being with his friends, the Philippians, the people that he loves. Dying is far better than being a part of advancing the gospel. Dying is far better for Paul than his own ministry. Why? Why is death gain for Paul? Is it because he's not going to have to suffer anymore? He's not going to endure sickness and sorrow and, and hardship, pain? Well, in heaven, of course, that's true. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say that. Is death gain for Paul because he's going to live for eternity in heaven? Well, again, that's true. But that's not what he says. Why then? Why is death gain? Why is it far better? Because Paul knows that when he dies, he gets Jesus. He gets Jesus. Of course, now, if if we believe in Jesus, we get Jesus. But Paul says, oh, so much more when we die. You see, Paul is living with a heart that treasures Jesus above all else so that when it comes to death, Paul can say, I can't wait. I can't wait. I get Jesus. Now, I'll be completely honest. That's not, that's not how I walk around living my life a lot of the time. I don't always live, just to be honest. That's, I don't always live like that. I don't always live with that kind of unshakable faith. I, I have the wrong glasses on. I let my circumstances dictate my happiness. I let other people and their success, I let it rob my joy because they've got what I want. Of course, death is hard for us to think about. Of course it is. I'm not saying it's not. But Paul wants the Philippians, he wants us to know that if we're ever going to be ready to die, ready to say alongside Paul, to die is gain, then it means living in a way that sees Jesus as being far better than anything we could ever have. Some of you are probably familiar with the name Jim Elliott. It's kind of an older story. Jim Elliott was a, a missionary to the Akua Indians, uh, an indigenous tribe in Ecuador. And, and in particular, these, this tribe was known for their brutality. To, to make a long story short, I have a lot of time to talk about the details. Tragically, this, this tribe ends up taking Jim Elliott's life. They kill him. But something that Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, maybe you've heard it, years before he was killed, it, it, stuck, with, it stuck with me for a really long time. This is, this is what he wrote in his journal. This is years before he died. He says this. He says, he is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, Jim Elliott gave his life to gain the thing that he couldn't lose, Jesus. As the music team comes up, I'll say this. I, I realize that most likely none of us in this room will ever have to die for our faith. That's, that's probably, I mean, we can be honest. That's, that's probably not us. We're not going to die for our faith, much less go through some sort of physical torment for it. But if we're going to be people that have the right kinds of glasses on, if we're wearing the right kinds of glasses in life, it's going to require us to see the hundreds the hundreds of little deaths that Jesus calls to our entire life. You see, in every one of those little deaths is like a little seed, a seed waiting to germinate, a seed waiting to explode, to advance God's kingdom of love and justice and mercy. Why are you still here? Because God has a plan and a purpose for your life to know him, to make him known. And it's a plan. It's a good plan. That circumstances that, that other people, even death itself, cannot change. That's good news. And it should cause all of us to rejoice. So let's do that now. Amen. Amen.